Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. I've been in church circles long enough and grown up as a minister's kid long enough that there's lots of things we like to say are, are signs of a healthy church, you know. Most of them are wrong, but uh, we like to say it's the, you know, how many people are in the audience or how many people attend the life groups or, uh, you know, what else, uh, how, how good the, the singing is, things like that. But um, if you ask me, one of the best ways to show whether a church is healthy or not is whether a minister who was here for eight years wants to come back and the people want him to come back. And uh, I just think that's really awesome. And um, I remember whenever I first started talking to Clifton, uh, they gave me Steve's contact and Matt Haynes' contact to call and just talk with them. And uh, that, had, that played a big factor in whether or not I wanted to pursue coming here was to hear how highly they spoke of the people here and uh, how well uh, they were treated here. So it's great to have you all here. And uh, I decided to go the sweet route than making some joke about the Packers or... or or about how you might be old enough to be my dad or something like that, you know, so. I went the other way, but. So, um, we've been going through this series called uh, God in the Manger, and it's a, a book that's a collection of letters written by Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Um, many of the letters are, and it's been helping us as a framework for this series, and uh, so we're going to continue that trend, but I'm going to introduce the fourth of the four words uh, in a little bit of a different way, but I, I want you all to think about this phrase for a little while. How many of you at some point this week have said to someone, I hope you have a, a, a Merry Christmas? People said that? Okay. Um, I also grew up where you did not say Happy Holidays. That was something my mom was big on because we want to remember Christ. And I, I, can, I can agree with that. But one of the things I think about with this phrase, Have a Merry Christmas, and one of the, things, the points I want to make today is that many of you have probably at some point or another said, I love ice cream, or I love chocolate chip cookies, or I love going to the movies. And as you've probably heard preachers say in the past, whenever we do that, we water down the word love, right? You know, love is supposed to be a special thing. You know, the idea of someone saying, I love you, uh, to the person they maybe want to marry someday, that's one of those, like, wow, they used the L word. <gasps> but we throw around the word love all the time for all sorts of things. You know, oh, I love this. And it cheapens it. And I want to contend today that I think sometimes we can cheapen this phrase a little bit. Because what we do is, what we mean when we say have a Merry Christmas is what we, we mean, I hope you have a great time with your family, you know? I hope you have a good December 25th. And I want to try to get us to think about today, um, I want us to think about the fact that we are saying much, much more than that whenever we say, I hope you have a Merry Christmas. And... I want to also make sure I say before I keep reading, um, I listen to lots of podcasts with lots of preachers, and I owe a lot of the heart of this sermon from Tim Keller, who preached a sermon called, I think, The Purpose of Christmas or something, and just, it's come through so much in this sermon, so I want to make sure I give him credit. If you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be reading from 1 John 1, verses 1 through 2, and I'm hoping that this, when we read this, Everything that you need to know about Christmas can be right here in these verses. Everything we need to know about why the phrase, have a Merry Christmas, means more to us begins, in my opinion, right here. So in 1 John, 1 John 1, 1 through 2, 
That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. This is the Christmas message, that we have seen that Jesus has come, the King has come and He has been born, the shepherds the reason they run around telling everyone is they're saying this thing, we don't understand it, we don't comprehend the fact that God has come in the form of a baby, but we're going out to tell you that we've seen it and we've touched it. He's real. He is incarnate. That is the fourth word of our series we've been going through. We talked about the mystery, we talked about the waiting, we talked about the redemption, and now we're talking about the fact, the word incarnation. And if you don't know that word, sounds technical to you, incarnation is the idea of something Becoming human. God becoming incarnate in Jesus Christ. We proclaim to you, we proclaim to you that what we have seen and heard, or we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. And so whenever we think about the message of Christmas, when we think about what we're saying when we say the phrase, Merry Christmas, there are two parts of it that I think are incredibly crucial. And that is that this phrase is doctrinal, big word, and it is historical. Now the word doctrine or doctrinal, some of you may really like that word. Some of you may shy away from that word. I think a lot of people who are atheists um, don't like the word doctrine because it sounds very rigid and uh, controlling. You know, well, this is the doctrine. And for others of us, we might like the word doctrine because it's something that feels firm, something we can stand on. Well, this is a doctrine that we believe. A doctrine, uh, as simple as explanation as you can get, is something that we base our lives on. This is a doctrine that we hold on to. It's something that we contend for. It's not just something that we're like, oh yeah, I think that's true. It's just like, no, I, I'm willing to stand up for this. It's something we insist on. So in other words, doctrine is first and foremost a faith stance. It's not something that we can prove scientifically. It's not something that we can prove empirically. It's something that we say, I believe in this. This is something I'm going to not just believe, but my belief in it is going to change the way I live my life. And I believe it is incredibly important that we realize that every time we say something about Christmas, we are speaking doctrinally because we are saying with our lives, with our words, with our thoughts, that the invisible has become visible, that the incorporeal has become corporal. The word corpus is Latin for body, like corpus Christi, body of Christ, corpus Christi, anyway. Corporal, the, the thing that wasn't in a body has become in body. The thing that was, and here's a great quote from Tim Keller on this, God has become human. The absolute has become particular. The ideal has become real. The divine has taken up a human nature. I love this phrase so much because when I was in college, I got really frustrated a lot when we would do ministry classes and we always had to talk about things in theory, right? I want you to imagine theoretically that you were a youth minister at a church. That's not real ministry because why is that not real ministry? Because real ministry happens in a church, in a context, in a community. It's not something that we talk about in theory, like, oh, well, maybe in this place. I, I think about people who do mission work. The reason why we don't just dig up a building like this and send it on a, a ship across to another country like Africa and just drop it down and say, oh, this is how you ought to do church. Look, we've got, we've got all this dropped it down for you. Why is that not right? It's because this 
is our context. This is where God has come and lived among us here in Clifton. And God looks like something, Jesus Christ has manifested himself as something else there. Another way that they're able to meet him. And it takes great missionaries to be able to say, how do we make this message of Jesus relevant and real here in this context? And we do that everywhere we go. And when we say that Jesus Christ came, we don't just mean, oh, well, you know, this big general thing happened where this guy came and he wants us to do all these good things. No, he, he came and really decided to become particular in your context, in your setting. In the setting of Jesus, it was ancient Israel. But he still, every Christmas, we remind ourselves that he still comes to dwell among us here where we are. No matter where you are in the world, he is there with you. And that is a doctrine that we live our lives on. Another thing about this doctrine that I think is so crucial of, of God coming with us is the fact that there are all sorts of religions that are fine with the idea of God being completely transcendent and holy and, and powerful. Islam has no problem saying God of the universe is supreme and he is in control and he is big and majestic. Islam has no problem with that. Buddhism or uh, even certain religions that worship nature and the earth, like Native American cultures, they have no problem with saying that God is right there next to you. They have no problem that saying, well, God is in the wind. God is in the mountains and the trees, and God is next to you. But the thing that separates Christianity from those religions is that Christianity says the God who is transcendent, who is in majesty and power and transcendent, also came very near to you in the child and a baby. The, the same religions that say, oh yeah, sure, God is right there. The, the wind and the trees and all that, they don't have room for the whole idea of this transcendent, powerful God. And yet, it is in Christianity, we see that Jesus came to be that. That he is both God transcendent and God Emmanuel with us. Isaiah 57 has this great pass, is this great passage that encapsulates so much of, of this idea of God being both. For this, am I on it? Okay. For this is what the high and exalted one says. The high, transcendent, exalted King God. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is the message that we've decided we are going to declare every Christmas. Every Christmas when we say Happy Christmas, we are saying a faith statement that the God of the universe became incarnate and is both high and lifted up and very near to us. As Acts says, what does Paul say in Acts? Uh, he says, he's nearer to you than your very self. That is Jesus. The other thing when I said uh, something we're proclaiming every Christmas that's so important is the history of Christmas. Christmas, Christmas is not just doctrinal, it's also historical. Whenever we read what John says in, in 1 John 1, he says, we saw him, we heard him with our own eyes, we, we felt him with our hands. He's saying, whenever you hear these stories of Jesus being born in a manger, when you hear these stories of Jesus rising from the dead, when you hear these stories of Jesus healing people and, and taking care of people, they're not just legends. They're not just things that we made up that sound nice and wonderful, these spiritual parables. Like the, I don't know, what's, what's one of the parables of, uh, you know, the, the, the boy who cried wolf, right? You've heard that story before, Aesop's fables. You know, is that Aesop's fables? 
It's like this boy says that there's a wolf coming and there's not one, and then he tells everybody and they all react. And eventually, a wolf actually comes and he says, hey, everybody, there's a wolf coming and nobody listens because he's, you know, he's run his course. He's lied too many times. That's a story that's nice and cute to try and get you to think a certain way. There are lots of people that whether they admit it or not, treat Jesus like that. Lots of really nice, good stories. You know that Good Samaritan story? That's a real nice story. I should think about that. Putting others first, that's a real nice story. But what we proclaim every Christmas is that the manger and the resurrection and the story of Jesus is not just a story. It's true. It actually happened in history. This goes completely against what the average person believes. The average person says those are wonderful, nice tales, but they're just parables. They're just legends. They didn't really happen. And the point of Christmas is that Jesus Christ really lived, and he really died, and it happened in history. He did and said these things. And every time you say, have a Merry Christmas, part of what you're saying is, I believe that Jesus Christ actually came and actually was born. And then, as a result of that, you also are proclaiming, I believe he actually lived, and he actually died, and he lived again for all of us. And so every year when I see these stories, I don't know if you see them, but there's lots of studies that say that Christmas time is one of the highest depression rate times in the country. And you might think, that doesn't make sense. Like, it's such a happy time. That's exactly why it makes the most sense. Because it's the time where the whole world decides to say, we're going to take everything that's actually going on and we're going to act like it's not going on to be happy with family for a little while, okay? That's what a lot of people do. There's a whole lot of people that spend all Christmas looking at their neighbor's Christmas lights and feeling down about themselves because their lights aren't better. There's a whole lot of people that spend Christmas looking at the presents that their other friends are able to do for their kids or that the trip that they got to go on and they feel pretty down because that's not them. There's a lot of people that spend a lot of time at Christmas where they, they know the message of Christmas is this is when we spend time with family and they're by themselves and they're alone, and it can be a really down time of year. And I personally can imagine how down I would feel at Christmas if I was in that position. But the reason why I'm not depressed come Christmas time, even if all those things might be true about me at some point or another, the reason I'm not depressed is because every Christmas, when we say we are celebrating the birth of Christ, we are proclaiming the truth that God became flesh, that he really lived and he really died, and that allows me to keep on going. That allows me to have hope during this time when we focus on exactly what we're saying at Christmas. And so I'm going to try and do this fairly quickly. But in my opinion, there are three things that if you really believe the Christmas message, if you're willing to sit here and say, I believe Jesus actually came, I believe that the God of the universe actually was incarnate in flesh, these are three things that should radically change the way you live. Because remember I said, doctrine is not just something you believe, but it's something that impacts how you live. And these three things are... so. These three things are that you should be genuinely in awe, which we've kind of talked about already, profoundly present, and intensely relational. With the genuinely in awe, we did a whole lesson on this, so I'll just read about this. But the idea that you should have an awe at the mystery of the fact that God came and lived. In Luke 1, 29-38, it says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered, oh yeah, genuinely in awe, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. When do I turn the slide? Sorry. After David. Okay. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So you will so the Holy One will be to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Mary's response is, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. The reason I wanted to reference this is all I can think about is do you think Mary actually understands what's going on here in this setting? Is there any part of her that's like, oh, I get it. This makes sense now. And so what is her response? Her response isn't to go, you know, okay, God, run that by me again. Okay, angel, can you, Gabriel, can you tell me again, like, what exactly is going on? No, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And I, I really believe that at some level, this is the mindset that we come to in this. Can we grasp? Can we understand what exactly we're proclaiming that God became flesh? No, we're never going to understand it. But our response is to say, okay, may it be so. Let me, let me live this out. Eugene Peterson has this incredible quote that helps us to think of this idea of living in awe of Christmas, where he says, mystery is not the absence of meaning but the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. This is Christmas time for us. Every day when we say Merry Christmas, what we're living out is we're saying, yeah, I am incredibly, this is incredibly mysterious to me how exactly this works, that God became a poor child, a baby in a feeding trough around all these animals. But that doesn't mean it's bad or wrong. What that means is there's just more meaning than we can comprehend. Next, uh, I mentioned profoundly present. If you are someone who believes in the message of God coming, then you have to see this life as something that's incredibly important. I mentioned this when I did my Ecclesiastes series, but often in church, we do this thing on accident where we make this whole life about getting to heaven someday. We make this whole thing about how do we get out of here so that we can get over there. And yet throughout the Gospels, all Jesus cares about is getting heaven over here. All he's worried about is trying to say, how can I get more and more of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? How can I have more and more of my disciples and my people who are bringing the kingdom of God where there will be no pain, no sickness, no death? No. How can I get more people to bring that here and make this life more like that? And you know, one of the great places we see that is the fact that God didn't just say, hey, you guys down there, I'm going to try and get you out of there as quickly as I can. What did he do? He sent himself in the form of his son to live among us. Traditional religion, all the traditional religions back then would have said anything that is bodily and not spiritual is bad. The body is bad. Why, why on earth would God want to become a person? The, the real action takes place in the spiritual realms, of course. And yet we are worshiping a God that says, no, actually, he came and he took on flesh. And this is important because... The gospel is that salvation is the kingdom of God coming down into this world. The body is important. Matter is important. The world is important. He took on physical flesh. Therefore, Christians know that in the name of Christ, when we share our faith, we're, we're not just saying like, hey, let me help get you out of here. What we're doing is we're saying, 
Christ came to help the poor person get a decent house. Part of what he's saying is, he's saying the kingdom of God is coming to try and help people just like our Savior, our God, came here to try and feed people, to clothe people, to heal the sick. And whenever we do those things, it's not because we're like, well, you know, that sounds nice, but it's because we have a Savior that we believe became incredibly present in this life, in this world. And when we believe that, we partner with that. We make everything we do incredibly present. The last thing is that we are intensely relational. In 1 John 1, he says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. For John, proclaiming that God came in flesh, the whole purpose of it is so that we can be in fellowship and relationship with each other. The whole purpose of God coming, the incarnation, is it gives us an attitude towards relationship. Jesus is God's message to the world. That he said, I want a relationship with you so bad that I'm going to leave all the things that I have to come near to you and be like you. In communication, at every level of communication, part of what you have to do is you have to be able to come to a place where you can talk to the other person. Like if Catherine only spoke German and I only spoke English, something's got to give, right? One of us is going to have to learn to speak the other person's language. And this is what God did through Jesus Christ. He sent His Son to come and speak our language, to show us with His life, I want a relationship with you so badly that I'm going to leave the trappings of, of, of heaven, empty myself to come be near to you. There's a great quote where... Let me see if I have it. This is another last Tim, Queller, Tim Keller quote. Incarnation, if it's imprinted in you, if you see what Jesus Christ has done, is going to make you unbelievably good at personal relationships. You're like, well... I know Jesus, and I'm not really great at personal relationships, okay? Well, then what you might not realize is just how much the incarnation is about giving up of God's, of Him giving up of Himself in order to have a relationship with you. So the next time you're having relationship troubles with someone, maybe think about taking the, the, the path of Christ where it says, I'm going to give up my position in order to have a conversation with you, in order to draw near to you. So when... Next year comes, and you're going to unpack your Christmas decorations. You're going to pull out all your Christmas sweaters. Maybe not if you live in Texas, because um, you probably don't own many Christmas sweaters. Remember that this whole world has the name of Jesus Christ on their lips, even if they don't worship Him. For us, the reason we join the angels in celebrating Christ's birth is because we believe it's true. We believe it actually happened. We believe that God came near nearer to us than we can imagine. And because of that, we're going to live our lives differently. We're going to live genuinely in awe. We're going to be incredibly present in this life, just like God came to be present in our life. And we extend radical hospitality in relationships because that's what He showed us by coming in the manger. If any of you would like to learn more about this relationship that Christ wants to have with you, if any of you have any prayer requests or anything, the elders are going to be standing at the doors while we stand and sing this song.